Welcome to Question Period. I hope you're all doing well. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, Is It Enough? We know that there are lots of conversations to be had about how we reopen uh, our economy, what happens in the right order, what the sequencing is, how we keep people safe. But we're a long way from having uh, uh, the ability to start doing that. With the federal government spending billions of dollars to prop up the economy, is there still more cash coming? And is more help coming for the energy sector? The finance minister, Bill Morneau, joins us on that and the crisis in long-term care homes. And then, bankrupt cities? I won't make apologies for telling people the truth about how serious this is. And I won't make apologies for calling on the province and federal governments for help that they can afford. Canadian municipalities are running out of money as out-of-work citizens cannot afford to pay the property tax. Is there anything the federal government can do to help? Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart and Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie are here with that crisis. Then, COVID cover-up? Evidence of, uh, of suppressing information, uh, not being open and transparent about the number of cases, about the, the, the capacity for spreading the virus in the early days. Uh, those are very uh, concerning. Should Canada really distrust the World Health Organization, or is that undermining a critical institution in the midst of a pandemic? Conservative leader Andrew Scheer weighs in on that and lots more. Then, former NDP leader Tom Mulcair and former interim Conservative leader Ron Ambrose join us on the Scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Our goal is to create immediate jobs in these provinces while helping companies avoid bankruptcy and supporting our environmental targets. So after weeks of waiting, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally announced aid targeted at the oil and gas sector. $1.7 billion to clean up orphan wells, plus $750 million for a methane reduction fund. But is it enough to kickstart the struggling energy economy, or does more need to be done? And why won't the Trudeau government call out the Chinese government for how they've handled COVID-19 and the information they've shared with the world. Finance Minister Bill Morneau joins us now. First of all, sir, thanks for joining us. I hope you and the family are doing okay in this crisis. Let's talk about the, the announcement on support for the energy sector. It was, of course, welcomed by some. Others said, look, it's still not enough. That sector has been absolutely hammered. Is your government open to more support to the energy sector? Well, Evan, happy to be on your show, of course. And, and I think it, in order to answer that question, it's important to reflect on what we, what we actually announced on, on Friday. We told people that we're going to not only provide support for uh, credit support for medium-sized companies, but we're going to do that in a way that's about demand. So we didn't put an overall cap on the size of the support. What this means is for, for companies that need a bridge through this time, uh, they're going to be able to do that. And from our perspective, that means literally thousands upon thousands of, of people that are employed in the sector will have a brighter future. So, so we think that was critically important. Uh, we know that businesses are going to come forward seeking that credit. And through the BDC and, and EDC, we're going to be there with that support. Canada bought shares uh, in the in 2008-2009 during their Great Recession then in, in the auto companies in exchange for a bailout. Is your government open or will it, for example, uh, bail out or give aid to airline companies or energy companies but in exchange for equity? Is that on the table? 
I think what you'd find if you talk to any uh, of those companies that you just mentioned or people in, in those sectors, they're not looking for a government bailout. What they're looking for is, is credit support, a way to get through this challenge. So what we're talking about is how we can actually ensure that through the BDC and EDC we provide that support. That's what we see as critically important. The 2008-2009 experience was, was quite different. The companies that you were talking about, they were actually in uh, CCAA, so they were, they were at a different stage. We're actually trying to make sure that we don't get to that phase. We're supporting people through our wage subsidy. We're providing credit support for businesses. We're trying to bridge a really difficult time. Right but hopefully get there so that we actually can have a strong economy coming out of here. Yeah, although you and I both know, given the projections uh, uh, that GDP could drop between 15 and 30 percent, uh, we could get there. So if we get there, is equity issues on the table? I think what you've seen us do, Evan, is we've, we've taken the, the information, the challenge that we have, and we've dealt with it in a way that makes most sense. So what I can tell you for sure is credit support is going to be absolutely critical to enable firms to get through right. this. We expect that this will be a, a, a deep challenge and we hope that it will not endure that long which will allow credit to be the way that we get through this. I think that's what we're trying to achieve and, and we, will, we will face each challenge as it comes with the information that we have at that time. Uh, the Prime Minister announced the other new program and you've talked about it, the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance which is supposed to support small and medium-sized businesses who can't pay the rent. This is a huge huge issue as you know uh, but we don't know the details can you give us a sense of how big this will be who will qualify and when firms will know the details on this I think first just to acknowledge I mean the, the rent issue those fixed costs for businesses it's a very real challenge that's what we were we were working to to deal with by putting in place this Canada emergency business account these forty thousand dollar loans for for small businesses of which you know twenty five percent is forgivable if they pay it back on time that was critically uh, put in place so that people could deal with those fixed costs. We do recognize though that for for many small organizations uh, rent might be in excess of what they're what they're able to get through that so what we're trying to do is is make sure that we find an approach that actually allows for a, some some level of, of relief from the tenant in terms of the rent payment and some way to make sure that the tenant and the landlord are working together. So the way we're thinking about that is is sort of by looking at the overall system, thinking about how we can give some right. sort of some mortgage um, mortgage support. And then of course we want to work with provinces. So I don't have the exact details because of the need to work with provinces, but I can tell you it's going to be finished in the relatively near term because this is urgent for so many small right. businesses. Okay, so the detail may, maybe next week for the details, are you saying? I'm, I'm working with the team as, as fast as we can because we know how important this is. We just have taken the approach that we needed to deal with people first and that's what we've done and we've, we've supported people within organizations and now we're trying to make sure that, that we don't have a situation where businesses just can't, can't bridge the time and, and rent's important. Right. It's urgent. Uh, I don't have an exact date but it will be very soon. Uh, on April 1st you told companies about the 75% wage subsidy. It was a little different. You said get ready to rehire people but there's a lot of businesses that have been closed for already a month or more. They don't have the cash flow to rehire people. So what do you tell people who say, I, I, you know, I'm still waiting for that 75%. I have no cash. I can't afford the risk of rehiring people. What's your message to them? I think we've, we've 
tried to do this as rapidly as we can. You recognize that we have to come up with these, these policies and we have to implement them. The good news is the Canada Revenue Agency has said that they think that, that the ability for people to go online for that will be up and running by the end of April, so, so soon, and that the funds will be very, there very shortly thereafter. I've also heard from the banks that they will be able <clears throat> to support their clients if the clients come to them and they need some support in order to pay their employees given that they'll be getting the wage subsidy. So there's more than one path for a business to find the way to actually do this. I recognize that some will have to do it once we get the, the measure up and running and we appreciate that that might be a reality in some situations. But what we're trying to do is react as rapidly as we can to support people first, to help businesses to bridge, and this, this wage support, this wage subsidy will, right. will be critically important for people and it, it'll help firms to keep those ties with their employees as well, which we, we know is critical. Uh, Mr. Morneau, Heritage Canada got $500 million to support the arts and sports. Will professional sports clubs be eligible for this? Are we going to see the Leafs, the Senators, the Canucks, billionaire owners essentially say, thanks, we'll take that money, or are they not eligible? I think you're going to see that looking much more at the, at the particular challenges that smaller organizations have that, that are finding themselves stretched. Many in the, in the arts or in cultural events or, or in, in sports are, are very seasonal, meaning they don't actually fit the revenue decline uh, criteria, so, so they can't necessarily get the wage subsidy. In some cases, they, they don't have full-time employees, they only hire contractors, so they might not be able to get the emergency business account. So we're very much thinking about how we support with the wage subsidy right. and emergency business account scale for those kinds of organizations, which is quite different than those, those very large organizations. So that, they're ineligible. Of course, they, they would be more likely to be able to get access to the wage subsidy. Right, okay, so that's like... Pardon me? So there'd be the professional sports teams, they'd be ineligible for that $500 million. Well, yes, they're already eligible uh, for the wage subsidy because they've been in a situation where their revenues have plummeted so significantly. So that's, that's for all businesses, large and small, but, but some in the art sector, the, the sports sector, just don't fit in. Mr. the UK, the US, France, many other countries have called out China for being dishonest about the number of deaths due to coronavirus, hiding the community spread, disappearing doctors. Former Canadian ambassadors to China have called Canada's position almost humiliating when asked about uh, whether we trust China. The health minister dismissed this as a conspiracy theory. The, Prime Minister doesn't call it out. I'm just trying to get at why is your government not being calling out the Chinese on their actions in coronavirus? Is it because you're concerned about economic backlash? I've been very focused, Evan, I think, as you know, on what we can do to actually deal with our situation to make it, you know, better for Canadians, better for our economy. So not engaging in, in uh, the sort of activity that's going to make it more difficult for us to get, uh, get this under control is, is what I would advocate for. Certainly uh, from my direct perspective, I'm very focused on the kind of economic measures that we can take in Canada. Our situation here is, is uniquely our situation and therefore we have to come up with measures that right. we're focused on here. But, but, and I, I uh, I'm not I appreciate saying that, that the question that you're asking isn't, isn't important, but it's, it's not one I'm focused on. Just, just, just let me just push back because the economic situation, we're in the health situation, many believe we're in it, it's worse because the Chinese were not transparent about it. I'm just, I'm just trying to calibrate why Canada's won't even say the word China and distrust when 
almost every other major uh, Western democracy is very concerned about that and that we're in this position partly because of the information that was coming out of China. Well, uh, there, will, there will be time for us to look back when we have time for sober second thought. I guess what I'm saying, Evan, is, is I'm really not in that mode right now. I mean, we are, we are every day thinking about right. what it is that we need to do to support Canadians. Hey, last question, Minister. Long-term care homes uh, are a wildfire, to use Premier Doug Ford's words. Just so much tragedy there. I know this is provincial territorial jurisdiction. Uh, will the federal government, though, come with some financial support or maybe will the military come forward with some help to contain the tragedies going on in our long-term care facilities? Well, uh, this is obviously uh, a critical issue for, for the health of our seniors. I've been very focused on how we can make sure that we support the essential workers. So the work I've been engaged in this week, the Prime Minister and I have spent a lot of time thinking about how we can support the provinces so that they can get support to essential workers. And that would very much include workers in those, those facilities, in old age care facilities, because we know that many of them are... You know, they're, they're really heroes in terms of what they're doing, but in many cases, not paid very well. So we want to find a way to, to get them financial support because they're doing this essential work. And there will be other things we need to think about. I know that there will be important ways that we can come up with in, in coming days to, to uh, supplement those, uh, those supports. But first and foremost, the people with the expertise, the people who are on the ground in those facilities, we need to take care of them so they can take care of, of our seniors because otherwise we just won't be able to deal with what is, uh, what is really the, perhaps the most difficult part of this crisis. God, leave it there. Minister Morneau, I appreciate your time as always, sir. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks very much, Evan. Take care. Take care. That is Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Coming up in the program, cash-strapped cities as the COVID-19 crisis continues to devastate the Canadian economy. Some of Canada's biggest municipalities are struggling to maintain a balanced budget. How severe will the impact on their bottom lines be? Will some cities go bankrupt? Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart and Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. So the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating blow to the Canadian economy. Stores are shuttered. Millions of people are out of work. And this could push cities and municipalities to the brink of bankruptcy. Cities survive on revenue from things like parking meters, which are being unused, places like rinks and rec centers, which are closed. And the main source of revenue, of course, property taxes. But many people can't afford to pay them now. Cities are not legally allowed to run deficits. So what will they do? Do cities need a federal aid package? Let's bring in two of Canada's big city mayors to find out. Kennedy Stewart is the mayor of Vancouver. And Bonnie Crombie is the mayor of Mississauga in Ontario. Good to see both of you, and I hope your families and your loved ones are okay. Uh, let me start with you, Mayor Stewart, in Vancouver. You've already said your city could risk insolvency. Why? What's going on there? Yeah, well, we've had losses of revenues like other cities. Uh, you know, we, we've had to shut down our community centers and parking and all this kind of, kind of stuff. So we, we're, we're really bleeding money, and uh, we know it's bad right across the country this way. However, I did a, uh, I did a, a study uh, about 10 days ago uh, asking people if they were going to default on their property taxes, and I found up to 35% of, uh, of the property taxpayers say that they may not be able to pull, uh, pay their full amount of property tax, which could 
add hundreds of extra millions of dollars onto our losses. So uh, if that happens, you know, we're already laying off staff. We've laid off 10% of our staff, our exempt staff, like management team is taking a 10% uh, pay cut. Uh, I'm going to take a 10% pay cut, um, but we're not done. I mean, we're we're just bleeding so much money that we're going to have to lay off more and more uh, people. All right. So so that's Vancouver. They're, they they could be in a desperate situation. And then uh, Bonnie Crombie, what about Mississauga? Is Mississauga well, in a similar issue? Well, certainly all the cities right across Canada are facing a very dire situation. Let's remember that we are the ones providing the essential services, whether it's fire and emergency servicing, police, paramedics, homeless shelters, affordable housing, uh, etc. We have had to take some pretty drastic measures in Mississauga as well. We did close all of our community centers, our arenas, our libraries, um, of course, and all our cultural facilities, the Living Arts Center, Meadowvale Theater as well. We've taken the unprecedented step of laying off 2,000 people, all of our part-time employees that staff all of the centers that I just um, I just mentioned. We have a hiring freeze on as well, and that may save us a little money. About $2 million in the short term could be $8 million in the long term uh, on the hiring freeze and the layoffs of part-time workers. All right, so let me go back to you, Mayor Stewart. So, you know, municipalities cannot, for operating, I know you can borrow for, for debt issues and, and, you know, bridges and things, but you can't do that on operating. So then what do you do? Uh, how close are you to insolvency and what would you like from your provincial and or the federal government? Yeah, now we're a ways away from insolvency. We still have contingency funds and that type of thing. However, what I was like, you know, my, uh, when I was discussing this last week, I was talking about the long term. And the real problem is if people cannot pay their property taxes, then basically municipalities are dead ducks because that's our main source of revenue. Uh, the provincial government yesterday did say now that we can uh, borrow from our capital funds into our operating okay. uh, budget. So we can't, yeah, but, but we have no uh, way of paying that off. So really that just kicks things down the road. And in fact, we're, we're not even gonna do that at, at this point because having massive deficits that you have to pay off in say 18 months with uh, perhaps economy in bad shape isn't going to work for, for so, us. So either a direct uh, a direct influx of capital or we just continue with our layoffs and service reductions. Would you like uh, municipalities or cities, Bonnie Crombie, to be able to A, have deficits? I know that's something that they're, it's illegal right now. Or do you need a federal program or a provincial program to help municipalities right now? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, so far, the provincial government hasn't made any comments with respect to whether there'll be a, um, business continuity operating funding for municipalities. We have had those discussions with uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christy Freeland. We suggested to her that the gas tax top-up would be a good way of delivering those funding because we can't recover the lost revenue in any way. We can't run deficits. And in fact, a city like Mississauga can't even borrow on the open market. So we're left with cutting services cutting our programs, wow. going line by line, deferring our capital expenditures. We're in the very fortunate position of having very healthy reserves, but most of them are dedicated and for right. a specific use. Can, can I, sir, let me just go back to you. This is personal for you. In the 70s, I know you could talk about this. Uh, your family lost the home in the OPEC crisis, but I'm hearing in BC, they're already talking about going back to a new normal, like 40 to 60% of normal soon. So can you, are you seeing this through that personal lens and and how long do you think this goes like when does this economy start partially reopening well well personally for me i mean as you mentioned my uh, my family did go bankrupt in the late 70s and 
it was just devastating. It, it blew my family apart. It, uh, you know, my father lost his job and it completely changed the whole course of our life. And, and I'm just thinking as our economy worsens, we're not having enough conversations about uh, real people here. We talk big numbers, we talk, you know, percentage this, percentage that, but really we need to understand, uh, and the cities are the best place to do this, to have the conversations about how people are being really impacted here. And it does keep me up at night thinking that some kid's gonna go through the same thing I went through. And uh, we have to make it as, uh, you know, we have to help as much as we can. And I, and I know from talking to mayors around the country, we are, we're, tr we're the only ones laying off people by the way, the federal and provincial governments are taking no hits to their workforces. So really this is completely landing on cities uh, with really very little help at this point. A few things here, a few things there, but if there's any time for uh, for help, uh, a serious look at how, how our cities are working and helping us out, it would be right now and it'd be very soon. Guys, I gotta leave it there. These are absolutely fundamental issues uh, and they're gonna get tougher as the timelines continue. Uh, Thanks so much, Kennedy Stewart and Bonnie Crombie. I wish both of you well, and uh, thanks for joining us. Coming up Thank on you. our program, should the WHO, the World Health Organization, be trusted by the government? Andrew Scheer says, not so fast. He joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Today, I'm instructing my administration to halt Funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. So more than 100 international political leaders and experts are calling COVID-19 China's Chernobyl moment, accusing the communist country of a massive cover-up, attempting to downplay the danger of novel corona. Was the World Health Organization complicit, as some of these experts claim, or not skeptical enough? Is it time that Canada pulls funding to the UN agency like the U.S. has done? Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, who's been very critical of the WHO, joins us now. I hope you and your family are well, sir. Thanks for joining us. You have expressed a lot of concerns about the WHO and the fact that Canada has trusted that and followed their advice. Do you support Donald Trump's decision to withdraw funding from that organization should Canada follow suit? Well, our position right now is that we need to start asking these very important questions and holding the WHO accountable uh, for their dependence or reliance or, or overconfidence in the information that is coming from China. Uh, our policies here from this Liberal government seem to be largely based on advice from the WHO and information. Uh, I don't trust information coming out of the, the communist regime in, in China. We want to get answers here before we make a, an official determination as to whether or not we should continue. Listen, there's two different issues here. There's China, the lack of transparency, the untruths, and I think those are legitimate questions. But you tweeted out, is Trudeau worried about upsetting the communist government in China? Why does he continue to put so much faith in the WHO instead of listening to Canadian experts? I'm trying to, so China is one thing, but are you suggesting what? That we should ignore the World Health Organization, which Canada contributes to in the midst of a pandemic? Is that wise? No, what I'm saying is we need to be have that critical analysis. And what what outraged me was when I saw Canadian 
cabinet ministers vouching for China, uh, vouching for the information that's coming from China. Remember, there were Canadian experts, like the Canadian Military Intelligence Report, that had a different series of recommendations that, that were saying that we needed to take this seriously earlier. And it was the information coming from the WHO saying things like there was no evidence of human-to-human -human contact because their information was coming from China. We now know that was false. So as an institution, we need to hold... Uh, we need to hold institutions accountable. We need to scrutinize their decisions. And that's what the Conservative Party is saying right now. Let's get these officials before committee. Let's stop vouching for the communist regime in China. Let's stop uh, saying like everything was fine. Clearly, there's a massive problem here. But what about sourcing goods from China? N95 masks. I, I recognize that Canada needs to build up a domestic supply but are you suggesting we should not then import emergency supplies from China and do business with them because they're a communist regime? What I'm saying is that at this moment in time, let's let's look at how the regime in China has evolved over the last few years. We are now uh, in the middle of a health pandemic where information uh, being provided to the WHO is is not reliable, not credible, that and the and therefore that's having an effect on decisions here. We're talking about two Canadian citizens who are still being held. Uh, illegally in China. We're talking about aggressive moves shutting down our exports to China. So uh, what we're saying now is it, this is the time uh, when we get through this pandemic, we need to take a look at what we can do here to protect our national security, to protect the health and safety of Canadians, to ensure that we have the capacity okay. to manufacture, to produce personal equipment, uh, protective equipment, ventilators, medical equipment. I, I think it's becoming more and more clear that we cannot depend on China as a, a partner in, 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 in our values. Uh, we need to re rethink uh, our relationship with China. Rethink the relationship? Okay, but I mean, that's, that has really large uh, implications for the second largest economy in the world. Let me just go at another institution that you've questioned, which is the Canada Health Agency. Uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has said he's open to testing methods or drugs that may not have been approved by Health Canada, but have been approved by, quote, peer countries, rerouting around Health Canada. Do you support that position or not? Well, look, I, I think that's a symptom of a problem at Health Canada. Uh, the, the, if, if provincial premiers feel frustrated that they can't get access to medications that seem to have gone through regulatory processes and verifications and testing in other countries with similar standards that we have here, uh, we need to we need to fix that problem. So uh, my focus as a, as a federal leader of the opposition is not to uh, you know comment on what provincial premiers are, are doing, but to recognize that if they are frustrated at the pace of Health Canada, Health Canada needs to uh, speed up the process. Real quick. Do you think Canada should have a plan right now, some kind of staggered rollout, like how to get back to work before there's a vaccine? Should they, or is it still too early in that, in your mind, to have that plan? Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's ever too early to start planning. Uh, we know we will eventually come through this. We know that there's going to be long-term serious economic effects that will last probably years. So uh, absolutely, while Health Canada and public safety and uh, other types of institutions are responding to the immediate needs, we need to have a view towards how Canada's going to emerge. Every country around the world will be fighting to get investment dollars, to get jobs back. Uh, we need to make sure that Canada is positioned to, 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 to get our share of the investment, to, 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 to kickstart our economy, to get big projects going again. It's never too early to start that work. And of course, as the health 
re uh, reality changes. We can make decisions as to when that best time is, but the planning should be starting now, yes. All right, I got to leave it there, Andrew Shearer. Thanks for joining us. Always good to have you on the program. But coming up, before a vaccine actually arrives, should Canada and when should Canada reopen the economy? And is the opposition undermining the WHO or did the WHO follow bad information from China? The scrum weighs in. We've got former NDP leader and CTV commentator Tom Mulcair and former Conservative interim leader Rana Ambrose as our special guests. Stay right here with Question Period. cannot be in a rush to get things going again because if we move too quickly to loosen all these controls, uh, everything we're doing now might have been for nothing. We'll find ourselves in another peak just as bad as this one or worse. Uh, and it will be extremely damaging both to both that, you know, how Canadians feel, uh, but also to our economy. So that's Prime Minister Trudeau warning Canadians that the economy won't be reopened anytime soon. When should he reveal a plan to reopen Canada in some staggered fashion before a vaccine arrives? Well, on Friday, the Prime Minister also announced new industry-specific support for the energy sector, the arts and sports sector, even commercial rent, but not a lot of details. Is all of this enough? Let's bring in the scrum to find out. Joining us today, Annie Bergeron-Oliver, reporter for CTV News, Joyce Napier, CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief, and our special guest today, former NDP leader and current CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair, who of course is in Saint-Sauveur, and the former interim Conservative leader and former Health Minister, Rana Ambrose. She joins us from Alberta. Great to see everyone. I hope you and your loved ones are well. Um, Tom, I'll start with you. Does the Prime Minister... I mean, I know we're weeks away, but does he have to start outlining a plan to stagger some kind of pre-vaccine opening? It's the toughest call there's going to be. The schools are, of course, the big question. Right Across all of the provinces right now, Evan, the province of Quebec is a good example. The question is being asked, can we allow kids to go back to school? There's talk of trying to increase the immunity in the herd that's the general population but if you let kids go back to school then they get it even though they might not suffer from it are they going to bring it back to their parents and grandparents the provinces have been rolling out different sectors of the economy bit by bit it's going relatively well how much can we allow it to open up mr trudeau keeps giving the correct warning that there can't be too much too fast otherwise we'll face a second wave Rana, Saskatchewan's pushing for a plan to eventually reopen the economy in stages. As Tom says, other sectors are. What could or, or what should that look like in your view? I think we have to start talking about reopening the economy because people, frankly, I think, are going to start to push the boundaries of these health measures if we don't. And I don't mean anything like we're seeing in the U.S., like protests, but I do believe that people are starting to become desperate when it comes to their own personal economic future. And that's concerning when people see that at Walmart you can buy groceries, so they're an essential service, but you can also buy clothes and shoes and other things. The guy down the street that owns a shoe store wonders, well, why can't I open back up if I follow a number of principles, policies and protocols that the government puts in place so that I can keep myself and my workers safe? There has to be a discussion about what that starts to look like, even if it's not for another month or two. People need to see some hope. They need to know that the government has a plan. We need to move out of phase one and let people know that there's a phase two. 
even if it doesn't happen for a month or two from now, they need to know that the government is prepared to reopen the economy. Joyce, if the U.S. opens up, and that could be the wild card, they're opening up in their own staggered steps, but they seem to be pushing even harder. Ronna talked about those pro protests. If the U.S. wants to push, or certain states do, what does Canada do? Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm going to go back to what uh, Christian Freeland said this week. We will decide in Canada what happens to our border. Um, and, uh, and I kind of agree with Rona too. There's got to be a protocol. When and if we open up the economy, will everybody have to wear a mask? Um, how will this work? Um, you know, we've been, we, we, we see in other countries that people who do go back wear masks. So is that, is that the ticket? How are we going to do this? And can we have a conversation about this? But, you know, we uh, journalists ask those questions daily to the prime minister and to the ministers. And really, we're not getting answers. It's almost like they're talking to the lowest common denominator and people cannot understand. But, you know, people are getting fed up. And I think that it's time to level with people and let them know the truth, even if the truth is, is a nasty thing. Uh, let me go to Annie Bergeron, Oliver. You follow the, the programs that are being rolled out. Uh, another week, billions of dollars. You got the energy bailout for Orphan Wells. Was that enough? Commercial rent, no details on that. Arts and sports. Uh, how do we calibrate when is enough from the federal government in this, Annie? Well, I think one of the problems the federal government has is since the very beginning, they said any Canadian who needs financial help will get the help they need. And essentially what that has done is set up the government in this position where people are saying, I don't have the support I need. You told me I would. So it's all about confidence. People are saying, you told me I'd be protected. You told me I'd have money and I'm falling through the cracks. So really, I think this is why you're seeing the government coming up with new updates to their programs. They say they're trying to prioritize certain groups first. And I think you're going to keep seeing more and more programs roll out. Right now, we're still seeing a lot of support for students is not there. The government has said it will be coming, but right now that's not there. There's also support for seniors who are on fixed incomes, who are living on old age security. Their costs of living are going up, but there's not any support for them. Right. Then there's also a lot of clarity right now needed around people who are on social assistance, who are receiving disability payments, and will that get clawed back if the CERB is considered income for them? So some clarity is needed, and I think you will continue to see more programs roll out as the government continues. Right used to say if you need help you will get it Tom it's blurring the rules of provincial federal responsibility help for long-term care the federal government's supposed to step in a provincial program rent commercial rent provincial responsibility the feds are being asked how do we understand what is happening here in terms of the responsibility of the federal government in these huge bailouts it's a basic principle of federalism it's subsidiarity so of course things like education and health those are the provincial jurisdictions. But right now, here in the province of Quebec, we're having such a total disaster in our long-term residences for seniors that the Army's been called in. 125 medically trained members of the Canadian Armed Forces are being deployed into those residences as we speak, Evan. So there is a blurring of the lines. There will come a time when we'll sit down. There'll be a Royal Commission of Inquiry into all of this. We'll find out whether we did get it right or wrong at the borders and in airports. Federal responsibility where things went wrong provincially. Why is it that some provinces like BC got it right early on, banning workers from going to more than one site? Took Ontario three weeks to get that rule in place. Quebec still hasn't done it, and that's part of the problem. So best practices, we're gonna have to learn for the future, but for, for now, the most important thing is that we're getting the help out as soon as possible. And as everyone is saying, we've gotta come up with a plan to reopen. 
Uh, Rana, the energy. Uh, the energy industry in, in Newfoundland, Labrador, Alberta, Saskatchewan has absolutely been hammered by this double whammy of the collapse of oil prices and COVID-19. The plan, uh, $1.7 billion for orphan wells. There's another plan for methane. Is it enough? No. Unfortunately, it's not. And just to put it, I mean, when you think of the demand destruction in the oil and gas sector, no one is flying anymore. People aren't driving as much anymore. Transit isn't happening. There is massive demand destruction. People are not using this product anymore. And let's just put it into perspective. In 2009, we had two companies that needed help, GM and Chrysler in Ontario. 21,000 workers, $14 billion bailout. The oil and gas sector has 830,000 workers across the country, 150,000 workers just in Alberta alone, and the government announced $2.5 billion. Every dollar of that is tied to an environmental outcome, which sounds laudable, but none of it, none of it will actually help companies that are dying today, workers that will be laid off and already laid off with liquidity. They need money to get them through and bridge this, this issue. Remembering too that as production continues, because you can't just stop producing, it's, it's not that simple. We've got storage levels um, rising massively. Those storage tanks will still be full when COVID is over. And there still won't be that that quick uh, return to demand. So these companies will need support now and for a little while. They're not asking for a bailout. They're asking for loans that are backed up by the government to just get them through right. this next phase. So we absolutely need some liquidity for this sector. Uh, real quick on that one. Do you think there's more help for energy sector? Bill Morneau was on the show uh, earlier, it's not. He's not ruling it out, Joyce. But we haven't seen it. Well, he is going to have to bail them out, and I, and I think Rana is right. This first step that the prime minister announced uh, on Friday is really a job creation program. What it creates five thousand jobs. Uh, how many jobs are lost? Did Rana say a hundred thousand? More than that so far, and many of them in Alberta. So it's a drop in the bucket. It's a step in the right direction. Um, Jason Kenney said that, but it's the one step in the right direction. There's got to be a few other steps if you want to keep those industries uh, alive. All right, let me take a short break. When we come back, Parliament is supposed to return tomorrow. But how is it going to return? Is everyone coming back? Virtual Parliament will get that debate and then the debate about the WHO and China. Who should Canadian politicians trust? We'll be right back. The Scrum is standing by. We'll be back in a minute with more question period. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says there's a consensus among his G7 colleagues that the World Health Organization should remain a critical source of information during the COVID-19 pandemic. But U.S. President Donald Trump didn't get the message. His decision is to pull America's funding from the WHO until a review is done. It's been widely condemned by political opponents, allies, even people like Bill and Melinda Gates. The U.S. is the biggest contributor, almost $500 million a year to that organization, which is the lion's share of the funding. But Trump's critique that the WHO failed to adequately confront the COVID-19 at the beginning of the outbreak because they were too trusting of the Chinese, is that gaining momentum? Is there merit to his argument or is it just scapegoating? To talk about that in the return of Parliament, the Scrum is back, Andy Bergeron Oliver, Joyce Napier and our special guests Tom Mulcair and Ron Ambrose are back. Great to have all of you and I'll start with you. Uh, Annie, uh, let's actually start with Parliament real quick on this. Uh, Parliament's supposed to come back 
all 338 people are supposed to come back unless today there's some kind of deal. Andrew Shear is saying, let's do three days of in-person sittings, one day of virtual sittings. Trudeau says one day of virtual sittings and make the rest of it virtual. How is this playing out? Well, this really is a last-minute negotiation. Of course, none of the MPs really want to have 338 MPs in Parliament. And I think what is necessary right now is collaboration, perhaps a level of collaboration we're not accustomed to seeing in Parliament. I think that both parties, all of the parties, need to put their partisan politics aside and focus on the people. How can you balance having MPs in Parliament to fulfill their democratic duties while also balancing the health? Because we have to remember it's not just the MPs who are coming back, it's the staffers who then have to be there as well. But this, we're not the only democracy who's doing it. The UK Parliament is also having issues with virtual Parliament. So I think there has to be some type of mix between virtual Parliament and in-person. It's finding that balance. It's obviously a problem and may continue to be as long as this pandemic is going, Evan. Uh, Tom Mulcair, Andrew Shear says bring them back. Oversight is an essential service. What's your take? Oversight is an essential part of our democracy. Andrew Shear is right on this one. With the 3-1 split both ways that you just described, Evan, it seems pretty easy to come up with a 2-2 solution. I think that would be fair because there has to be a tomorrow when there's been a question period. Mr. Trudeau has been doing a very good job standing in front of the cameras every day at his residence in Ottawa talking to Canadians, but it's a little bit too easy. He can go for three, four, five minutes in English and in French. You almost forget what the question was. There's a time to ask a good, clear question and to determine whether or not the government is capable of answering. That's called accountability. That's why Parliament is so crucial. And that's why Andrew Scheer is right on this call. There's more that has to be done than what's being put on the table by the Liberals thus far. Rana, what do you think about this? I completely agree with Tom. It's all about accountability, but it's also about leadership. These are the leaders of our country. And very soon we're going to have to ask every business or many businesses across this country in a staggered approach, um, albeit to come back to work. They're going to have to figure out a way to help their employees work safely. Some of them will continue to work by Zoom because they need to be at home to be safer and other people will have to come back to the office and we'll have to figure out how to ask them to do that. And if our leaders can't figure that out, we've got a problem. Joyce, you want to weigh in on uh, Parliament's return? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I agree that accountability is important. And in cases like this, 9-11 is a perfect example. The first thing that falls is individual rights. So that institutions, democratic institutions, super important. The question I have is, sure, we want the opposition to ask questions. The only thing is, why do they have to be there in person? I'm at home. Uh, you guys are at home. Um, this is working out. Okay, so can they figure out how to do this safely and how to still be an example because there were a couple of cases in the last week where our two leaders, the conservative and the liberal leader, uh, did things, one going to his uh, cottage, the other one taking a plane with his four kids and his wife and other politicians. You know, that's not right. If they want us to follow, they have to lead. Um, and that's that. So find a way to do this, uh, to keep our democratic institutions alive and do it virtually. And if you have to come back to Parliament to vote, as the Bloc Québécois has suggested, then come back to vote with a minimum of MPs. But the rest can be done virtually. All right, now let me go over to the WHO. I'm going to go back to you, Tom, real quick on this. Donald Trump pulled funding from the WHO. Andrew Scheer is saying China has not been truthful. We've got to hold them to account. And he's concerned about the WHO that was over-trusting of China, and maybe he's, he's suggesting Canada shouldn't trust the WHO. On the other hand, Justin Trudeau won't even 
say any, doesn't even mention the word China when he's asked, does he trust the information? How do you measure this notion of the Ch China's response in the WHO and how our leaders have responded to the trust question? Well, the WHO has really gotten it wrong since the beginning, and that's easy to show, but it's the wrong target right now. We should be worried about taking care of our populations who need care. With regard to China, there will be a time for reckoning. They'll have a lot of explaining to do, but a lot of people have rushed to judgment. They haven't heard both sides. There's been no opportunity to really look at and weigh the evidence that, that might have, or might not prove that China did something wrong. I think that Mr. Trump is mostly trying to distract from his own failure. There's been an abject failure in the United States to protect their populations. It's out of control, and it's because of a lack of government action. Uh, Rana, distrust of China, does that mean distrust of the WHO? Who's got this right, Sheer or Trudeau? Look, I, I, the WHO is a membership-based organization made up of countries that donate into an organization, an institution that has to work with all of its members. I think the problem started in Wuhan, as we all know, with the virus. And right from the get-go, it was difficult because China is not an open democracy. China does not have free press. China does not have transparency like we have here in Canada. So right from the beginning, there was skepticism, there was suspicion that we weren't getting all the information. And we won't know for a very long time, perhaps, if that's the case. But the WHO is in the middle of all of this. Were they allowed into China early enough? Probably not. Could they have done anything differently? I don't know how the WHO can force their experts into China. I don't know how they could have done different. But they also uh, do a lot of good work around the world for developing countries. And that's the important role that the WHO plays right now in terms of coordinating all of this science. Canada, the U.S., others who have a great foundation of research, science, and very robust healthcare systems can probably live without a WHO. But the reason we participate in an institution like this and we have to hold them accountable. There's no doubt about that. But the reason we participate is because there's a lot of countries that don't right. have good health care systems. Uh, Annie, you're asking the Prime Minister questions almost every day. He just will not say anything about China on this. That, it's kind of baffling to a lot of people. The French, the UK, the US, everybody else seems to uh, be calling it out. What's your take on that? Exactly. Yesterday, he was asked on multiple occasions about China and wouldn't even specifically say it. The question, why? Is he concerned about angering the Chinese? What is it specifically? Does he not want to point fingers? I think it's fair for elected officials as well as for us to be questioning the Chinese because there are a lot of questions about what they did. Were they too late? And the same thing with the WHO. And I think a lot of that will come out in their reports. But we have to remember as well that Canada also did have our own intelligence. We were working with the Five Eyes partner with American intelligence who were flagging concerns in China. Uh, the Prime Minister said he heard that back in January. But I think the other question we also have to be asking is were our security networks prepared for this? There are some experts who say Canada's intelligence was not prepared for this pandemic, Evan. All right, guys, I got to leave it there. Uh, lots going on every day. Rana, Tom, great to have you as special guests. Of course, Joyce and Annie, I see every day, and great to have you back here. And thank all of you for watching. Look, as we all said, we're deep into this crisis now. It's clearly taken a toll on many of us, many of you. So just remember, take good care, stay compassionate, stay healthy, stay together but apart. Thank those frontline workers, those essential workers getting our food and our services. We'll be back here in seven short days, and I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV's Power Play. Take good care.